pieces, and I guess I just want to introduce myself. I'm Jeff. Um, I've been a pastor here for 30 years, and uh, in the season, wait, my wife just told me it's only been 20 years. So, wait. <laughs> it feels like 30 sometimes, but no, that's right. She just told me she and I've been married for 30 years, so. That's where I get it mixed up. But yeah, I'm Jeff. I'm, uh, <laughs> I do love you guys. Thanks for lots of grace. I, uh, yeah, so I, I'm the interim lead pastor here. And we're walking through a season. And uh, I want to give a shout out to the elders. It was Gary and his wife, Denise, that were up here. Gary's our head elder. and. Those men are doing a, a great job. They're putting in a lot of hours. Please. Yeah. They're putting in a lot of hours. And, and it is with you in mind. And it is with the future of Leroy Chapel in mind. And they're just, they really are working hard to, to rehearse um, the, the uh, what, what the church is, who we are as a church, and, and, and lay some, some course and some path forward uh, for us as a, as a people. And I just uh, I appreciate them for putting in all those uh, hard hours. So thank you, men. Um, we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and I tell, you, uh, I tell you that so that you might turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you are more than welcome to grab one of those that are in a chair, probably underneath a chair in front of you. Uh, if you see somebody without a Bible, hand them one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, just take one home with you. Uh, we would love for you to have that as a gift. But Hebrews chapter 7, if you see somebody fumbling with where to find it, help them get there. I think in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1,000 gets you to Hebrews, and then you can find it from there. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, all of our text uh, is going to come from Hebrews chapter 7. I'm not going to float around um, outside of that. So I, there's some of the texts are going to be on the screen. And mostly, I want you to be able to look in your scriptures when I reference something so that you might be able to see it for yourself. Um, we're talking about, in chapter 7, we're talking about Melchizedek. And I'll just uh, rehearse briefly for you who is uh, who is Melchizedek? Um, he's, he's a one-of-a-kind, godly character in God's story that God used to point people from the time of Abraham. Remember, we look back into Genesis, uh, uh, the, the, where, where we see the interaction between um, Melchizedek and Abraham. We looked back at that last week. From the time of Abraham uh, in 2000 uh, BC all the way to the present, God used this story uh, to point to a better priest. Uh, that was his whole intention in God's program. Now, certainly he did some really great things and there was some significant stuff that happened right there in the, in the immediate when he, when, he, when he interacted with Abraham. But in the grand scheme of things, Melchizedek was intended to point to a better priest um, who was to come. And, and that's who we're worshiping this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Melchizedek is a model. He's a picture. He's a type. He's a shadow. He's, he's, he's not the Savior, but he was intended to point to a Savior. 
And here's why he's so important to the writer of Hebrews and to the people who are reading this. If you remember, these, uh, these readers were tempted to turn back to Judaism. They were tempted to, to give up on their faith and tempted to turn back in the time of persecution to something that was much more acceptable. Um, kind of like the, the common uh, Christianity or the popular Christianity of today that somewhat gets politicized. People are kind of tempted to say, I'm part of the religious right or I'm a, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a Christian. Yet when you talk to them, they don't know anything about Jesus. These were people that were wanting to turn back to Judaism that was much more popular, much more acceptable. And his readers were tempted to do that. So what he's going to do is he's going to, throughout the whole book of Hebrews, he's picking out touch points, critical points of interest for these people so that he might use those points of interest not to teach about them, but to teach about what those points of interest were intended to point to to begin with. Angels, Moses and the law, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the promises that were given, the temple. Everything that he's pointing to, everything he's teaching about, he's trying to grab their hearts and say, You don't get to hold on to these things without Jesus, without seeing that they point to Jesus. In a systematic way, he's using every critical point and connecting Judaism to Jesus, who is better. Jesus is better. In chapter 7 specifically, in that lawyer-esque kind of argument, chapter 7 specifically is looking at the priesthood. And it's connected to many points of interest. Just, Just the priesthood itself is connected to many points of interest in Judaism. Abraham and the patriarchs, the law and tithes that are given to the priest, the priestly line that comes from Levi, and the kingly line that comes from Judah. King David, who wrote Psalm 110, a thousand years after Melchizedek. David, who wrote Psalm 110, 4, on the screen, a thousand years after Melchizedek, is still pointing, even more so, with greater gusto, pointing to the one who is to come after the order of Melchizedek. There's something about Jesus, the Messiah, the one that's coming, that's going to be like Melchizedek. So one by one, one by one, the writer's connecting the dots of where this man fits into the story and why he's so important. Where he fits in the story and why he's so important. Because he wants everybody who's reading it not to know more details. Remember the the story last week about the wires at the back of my stereo? It's so tempting to look at all the, the wires and not see how it connects to making that system work. Well, Melchizedek is one wire 
really significant one in God's story, and he points people to Jesus. In our text today, we've got a big question that he's answering, and he's going to do it in two ways. Verses 4 through 10, he's going to answer the question, how is Melchizedek like Jesus? How is Melchizedek like Jesus? Now, last week, we talked about this great man and what he was like. This great man, Melchizedek. Now we're going to talk about why he is like Jesus. And the second question is, why does it matter? Hey, brother, can you pass on that? Let's go back, and I'll put that slide up just yet. Why is he like Jesus, and why does it matter? Why is he like Jesus, and why does it matter? Let's read the text. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read it as we go. I'm going to read a chunk of it in three different uh, chunks throughout the, throughout the service. But why don't we stand in order of God's word and read this passage together. I'm going to begin in verse 4 and go up to verse 10. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent From them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we just ask you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, would you make it to come alive? Would you work in our hearts to remind us and even shake us? And even some who are sitting here or standing here right now, that don't know who Jesus is and don't see how this fits together, God, would you, in the most useful, helpful way, teach us about your son, Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. So the first point I told you already is is this. How is Melchizedek like Jesus? Verses 4 through 10 is... It's answering the question, how is Melchizedek like Jesus? And I've got three subpoints here. How is Melchizedek like Jesus? And the first thing is this. Melchizedek is like Jesus in that he's, he's superior to Abraham. Melchizedek is like Jesus in that he is superior to Abraham. Now, the writer needs to set these things up because he wants us to see Jesus, remember. He wants us to see Jesus. And he's setting up Melchizedek as being greater than Abraham because he wants us to see Christ. Why? Melchizedek, the text says, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. 
Now, this point is hard to see. You don't see it in the Greek. Now, I won't do this real often, but it's really significant if you could see it. Here's how it actually is worded in the Greek. When something wants to, when someone wants to emphasize something in, in, in Greek, they'll put it right at the end of the sentence, and it'll be like an exclamation point. Listen to how it sounds. It says this, See how great this man was, to whom a tenth Abraham gave of the spoils, the patriarch. The patriarch. Isn't it amazing what happened in that situation? Abraham gave tithes to Abraham, the patriarch. See, in the heart of the reader, who really enjoys and, and is, is even possibly longing to, to go back to Judaism, their heart is beating for Abraham. Oh, Abraham is a rock star. And Melchizedek gave tithes to Abraham. So if Abraham is that amazing, in their heart, what ought they be thinking about Melchizedek? Right? That's the point. The argument sounds like this. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Our patriarch Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Second support for this idea is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It wasn't the other way around. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Look at verses 6 and 7. And you can look at it on the screen. I add the the names in there just to, to keep you tracking. But this man, Melchizedek, who's who he's talking about, who does not have his descent from them, he's talking about Levi, the Levitical priestly line. He doesn't have his descent from them, Levi. He received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And here's the punchline. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. If God gave the promises, you remember the promises that God gave to Abraham? I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. If God gave the promises to Abraham, the patriarch, the rock star of Judaism, and he did, and Melchizedek, blessed him, how much greater must Melchizedek be in the story of God? The greater blesses the lesser, not the other way around. He's saying, Father Abraham is our great patriarch, and Melchizedek, the priest king, blessed him. You getting the point? You getting the point? Abraham is amazing. Melchizedek is even greater. He's going to get to the place where he says, and and Melchizedek is like Jesus. Melchizedek is like Jesus. He's the greatest of all. He's even greater. The second point here is this. 
Melchizedek is like Jesus and that he is superior to the Levitical priests. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, and those of you who don't understand this, listen. There, there, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, and there's Jacob. And Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. And one of those sons is Levi. And Levi, God uses as a priestly line. All of the priests of the Old Testament came through one family, through one line, through Levi. The Mosaic Law, the Old Testament law, expected the people to give a tithe to the priestly line of Levi. This argument centers around the fact that Abraham did what? He gave tithes. He gave tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is not from the line of Levi. He's even better. He's even better. He's from outside of the line of Levi. Guess who else is a priest from outside of the line of Levi? Jesus. Jesus is a priest from outside of the line of Levi. Melchizedek is like Jesus in that he's superior to the Levitical line. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 5. It says this, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a command of the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descended from Abraham, and there it is. The Levites were supposed to take tithes. And this guy is outside of the line of Levi. He's not a Levite. You know why we know he's not a Levite? He's not going to be born. The Levitical line isn't even come, come true until 600 years later. He's totally outside of the line of Levi. In 7 verse 6, But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, Levi, he receives tithes from Abraham. From the time Abraham received the promise from God, to establishing the Levitical priesthood, guess how many years are there? The promise goes to Abraham and the Levitical line. Guess how many years are between those two, act, activ, those two things in history? 630 years are between those two things. Obviously, Levi wasn't born yet. Melchizedek comes from outside of the line of Levi, just like Jesus. In verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, this can get a little bit confusing. What does he mean by in the loins of Abraham? We don't use that phrase very often, do we? Well, once or twice in my life. In the loins. What he says, he's in the line of Abraham, like he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. 
And it's so important to think about how they thought about lineage. Like it was extremely important. And and if Abraham gave to Melchizedek and Levi is a descendant of Abraham, it's almost as if you could even say all of his descendants, they would give tithes to Melchizedek too. And he's not even a Levite. You get the picture? This is how important Melchizedek is. Because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek and Levi is a descendant of Abraham, that means it's as if Levi himself and his whole line of descendants also gave tithes to Melchizedek. Are you tracking with this? Praise God. Because it took me all week. (laughs) Here's my third point. My third point of how Melchizedek is like Jesus. Melchizedek is like Jesus because he represents an eternal priesthood. An eternal priesthood. Look back at verse 3 in your text. 7 and verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. Now that doesn't mean that that Melchizedek is, is some kind of angelic being. I don't believe that he's a like pre-incarnate Christ. I know some people believe that. I don't believe that. I think Melchizedek was a real man, and God used him to tell his story. And even now, we're rehearsing it. It means that we don't know his genealogy. So in writing, when Melchizedek pops up in Scripture... There's nothing telling about where he came from, and there's nothing telling about where his line went. So what does that person appear to be like when you look at him on paper? He appears to be eternal. He appears to be, he didn't come from anywhere, and he didn't go anywhere. In his line, his priesthood goes on forever. That's what he's saying. In writing, his ministry goes on. Specifically, it is eternal, like who? Like the Son of God, like Jesus himself. He makes the point in 7 and verse 8, he says this, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That means men of the Levitical line. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. This is Melchizedek. And he's a perfect picture of one who lives, is he not? One who is eternal. Melchizedek doesn't have a lineage. No beginning, no end. And Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not in the order of Levi. Who we're going to talk about next week. They are one-to-one. They're born and they die. They're born and they die. Melchizedek is a good picture of one who doesn't die. Are you getting the point? At this point, the argument is pretty strong. And and, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to, 
he's trying to say to these people who are possibly turning back to Judaism, he's trying to head them off by saying, listen, you don't get Judaism without the fact that everything in Judaism, its intent is to point you to Jesus. Everything that I'm going to tell you, everything that I've been telling you, is to say when you turn back to Judaism, it's going to turn you, and I long for it to turn you, back to Jesus. If you turn back to Judaism, you're going to have to deal with Abraham. And Abraham honors Melchizedek as priest king. You're going to have to deal with the Levitical priests all the way from Moses to the present who are all lesser than who? Melchizedek. You're going to have to deal with King David's Psalm 110 who's, who, who's, that is written a thousand years after Melchizedek. You're going to have to deal with the picture of Jesus that's right there at the heart of Judaism. You can't have Abraham without Melchizedek. You can't have Melchizedek without David in Psalm 110. You can't have David in Psalm 110 verse 4 without looking for a Messiah after the order of Melchizedek. Do you see it? You can't have Judaism without seeing the compelling evidence of how all of it points to a better priest. Can we bring this into the present for a moment? As if that's not, I mean, that's good news, is it not? To see how these pieces fit together, not to do mind candy with it, but to see that God's intent all along with his people was to point them to a savior. For us today, make it known and be reminded You can't have God without Jesus. You don't get to live in some nebulous sense of spirituality without thinking about an eternal God and his son, Jesus. How many of you have got got friends or relatives that are, that are worshiping the universe these days, right? You don't get to have God without Jesus. There is no morality without absolute truth. There's no absolute truth without God. There is no joy in creation without a creator. Listen. There is no peace with God without the message of the gospel, the holiness of God, the sin and the fall of man, the justice and wrath of God appeased by a a perfect sacrifice, the judgment placed on the shoulders of our Savior Jesus, and then the resurrection. There is no peace with God without the exclusive message of Jesus. 
See, we try to do this every week, pointing you and me and my heart and our hearts towards the exclusivity of there is only one way. Remember him, worship him, love him more than anything. It's not any different. This writer is trying to do the same thing for his people. Their heart's bent is to go an easier route, seemingly. And he's saying, you don't get to do that. And Melchizedek is the key that he's using to unlock their hearts and point them to a savior. The writer's argument goes forward. How is Melchizedek like Jesus? He's, he's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's, he's, his priesthood is eternal, resembling the Son of God. And now, now in verse 11, he's going he's gonna to tell us why does that matter? Why does that matter? Let me read for us the next segment. Now, if per- perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So verses 11 and 14, why does, why does this matter? It's an explanation of the importance of Melchizedek and what, what that says about Jesus. Melchizedek was used in the course of history, even 600 years before the Levitical priesthood was established, that something better was needed than the Levitical priests. Verse 11. Verse 11. Perfection was needed. And it wasn't had in the priesthood of Levi. Perfection was needed. That is, the capacity for people's sins to be genuinely forgiven. They needed a sacrifice for sin that would overturn the guilty sentence and condemnation that rests on their shoulders. They needed redemption. They needed salvation. They needed to be reborn. They needed to be born again. Verse 18 and 19 talk about how the old way was set aside because of the, there's these two words, because it was weak and it was useless. That is not a dig on the Old Testament or the Mosaic Law. It just talks about how it wasn't able to save people from their sins. For the law made nothing perfect, verse 19 says. The sacrifices that the Levitical priests made were able to cover, but not able to cleanse. If they were, they would... There would be no need for Melchizedek. There would be no need for one to come after the order of Melchizedek. Do you get the point? Melchizedek, before the Levitical priesthood was ever established, 
was this picture of one who could perfect salvation on our behalf. We needed another one. And that's what the scripture says. Another priest has come in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. And there's the, there's the punchline, isn't it? One like Melchizedek, not like Aaron and the Levitical priests who died and had to be replaced. His line would be eternal, not like Aaron who is human. There would be one priest from the line of Judah, the line of King David, and his kingdom would never end. One that would perfect salvation forever. It would perfect salvation forever, not pointing to another one that would come. He's the one. Verse 12. One that would come and change the priesthood forever. One that would come and uphold the law perfectly to not only make a sacrifice, but what? But willingly become a sacrifice on our behalf. This is our King and Holy High Priest, Jesus, who is both just, as Romans puts it, and the justifier. Verse 15 goes on. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but what? but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, here's our Psalm 110, verse 4, quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that's the point. That's the point, is it not? We have a high priest, and we get to draw near to God because of the work that he's accomplished for us. Verse 15 to 19 is the final proof and the punchline of the passage. Jesus came just as promised after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is from the line of Judah, like like King David, a better king, a king whose kingdom will never end. Jesus is a high priest, but he didn't become a priest by legal requirements through the line of Levi. Just like it says in Psalm 110.4. Jesus became a priest. How? Jesus became a priest by way of the cross. Jesus became a, a priest by way of the cross. More specifically... He became a priest by way of the cross and proved, proved his greater priestly status, his greater eternal priestly status through the resurrection. Jesus is a priest with an indestructible life. Here's the punchline. An indestructible life can provide indestructible salvation. And salvation that is indestructible provides better hope. Better hope. (laughs) 
if there were ever a day where we needed hope, right? <laughs> our political system, our economy, yeah, we're booming, right? But who isn't feeling like the bubble's going to break at some point? Church that has felt turmoil. Relationships, no doubt, that you feel on a daily basis. Relationships that struggle, no doubt. If there ever were a time that we needed a better hope, is it not today? Is it not right here, this moment where you sit? Let's be reminded of the better hope that's ours. Next week, we talk about, more specifically, the new covenant. There's a better covenant that God has established on our behalf. And it is full of hope. Amen? So as we turn to communion this morning, we rehearse this better hope that we have. It is the table, if, if you will, it is the table of hope. The bread and the cup representing the sacrifice that is made on our behalf. Bread, a cracker. As we break it, as we chew on it, we remember that sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Our, our high priest literally died for us endured, in his humanity, endured death, death on a cross. And his blood, his blood represents that new covenant. There's a gracious, gracious God who has provided salvation. And as we turn to communion, we remember him. Amen? Amen.